really excited about today. I want to share with you a brand new study. And again, I want to remind you, if I can, really quickly, about uh, what I do. What I do. What uh, I, I've never changed. And I, I've never planned on changing. I never really thought I'd change. Perhaps some thought I might change. But um, what I do is, uh, in these kinds of settings, is literally, we just get up. I... I and we've talked about this, we, we joked, Tim and I joked a little bit about this before, but some of the comments that you receive as an evangelist, you know, when you're in the services and you're leaving and people come up to you and they say everything from good talk, good talk tonight. <laughs> I gave you a good talking to, you know what I'm saying? Give you a good talking to. Okay, it's a good talk or, or uh, here's my favorite. That's an interesting spin on that passage. Of course, my response is that's not a spin, that's what it, that's what it says. You just never heard it apparently. Okay, that's, you know, there's a difference. And, and what I do is, uh, I, hey, I don't, I don't have an opinion in all of this. Just as, as honest as I can be. We come to a passage of scripture, and I'm, I'm just as authentic as I can be. I come to a passage of scripture, I don't write this for you. In fact, I, you try to sell this, but I don't know if anyone buys it. I would not study, stop studying the Bible like I'm studying it. Even if, you know, if I, if I wasn't in evangelism, someday I'm not going to do this forever. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to retire at like 90 and get off the road and, and do something else. I'm still going to study. This is, because this isn't for you. See, we get in, I get into the word and study this thing about knowing him and, and experiencing who he is. And then in this kind of setting, we stand up, I stand up and I allow the word to paint a picture of what a Christian looks like out of that passage. Not my opinion. I'm not telling you what I feel. We take this passage and allow it to paint a picture of what a Christian looks like. And then all of us sit back, look at that picture and say, where do I not look like that? And wherever I don't look like that, I respond. And growth happens. And so I I do, I want to challenge you tonight that, man, and you're in this service. Don't get out of the posture. Uh, And again, we talked about this, the posture this week and and, and out of Revelation chapter 2, what we're dealing with these churches. It's it's coming in this service, it's sitting here and saying, Jesus, I give you permission to speak to me tonight. I do, I give you permission to speak to me tonight and stretch me. I mean, I love you with all my heart and and I don't, I want to walk out of here different than I'm sitting in here. Just, I give you permission, have at me tonight and stretch me. That's what we've been meaning by spiritual posture. Now, uh, we've been looking in this, obviously you remember all this. We've been looking at revelation, uh, this week and I've been really, uh, my own personal study time. I've been caught up in revelation chapter two and three and looking at these seven churches. Jesus has come in chapter one and, uh, uh, or rather in chapter one, you have this introduction. John's come to these seven churches and he's introduced to them the prophecy. So they received this elaborate introduction And from Jesus in the introduction, we learn about what kind of churches these churches are supposed to be. You are a lampstand, period. I mean, period. You're a lampstand. And I don't know how you translate that in your life, but I'll tell you how I translate it in my life. That uh, when I walk out into that, in your community, and I've been hanging out and just being Jeremiah, which I don't know if it's a good thing, but I've just been being Jeremiah all over your community. And I've been just pushing Jesus on everybody in your community. That's my calling. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's not a Sunday thing. It's a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday thing. So I stood in your YMCA this week and held up Jesus while benching 350 pounds. So it was great. So, hey, uh, just we are called in whatever environment, whatever you're into. And I I don't know how you're going to take this theologically, but I did this from the very beginning of, of just 
because I wasn't raised in church and I didn't know what, to th- what was inappropriate, what was appropriate, and those kind of things. I found as a Christian, it was less about excluding things in my life and more about including Jesus into everything in my life. And as, as, that's exactly what it was from the beginning for me. And so, hey, just from the very beginning was all about living with him and learning about him and, and just being who I, who I am, filled with Jesus. And, and so I still do some of the things I used to do. I mean, I thought once I became a Christian, you can't watch boxing. But I found out Jesus loves boxing, okay? You, know, you may not know that. But uh, hey, I mean, you just, man, you watch boxing with Jesus. And that's what he's telling these, same, these seven churches. I mean, he comes to these seven churches and says, I am the answer for what you're going through. And I want you to partner with me. I mean, he comes to Ephesus and says, I have a plan for Ephesus. Hey, this is what I want to do in your community. This is what I want to do in your context. It's what I want to do in your kid's life. It's what I want to do in your parents' life. It's what I want to do in your church. This is what I want to do in your YMCA. It's what I want to do down at your job. See, this is what I want to do in your life. And your role in that is to stand in the middle of your world and just love me in front of everybody. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a witness. Okay? To stand in the middle of your world and just fall in love with Jesus. That's, that's the idea of being a lampstand. Stand and hold him up. He says that to the seven churches. Okay, now we covered that. But when you look at these seven churches, what we begin to find is that there's a specific format that he uses to address them. Okay, he comes to these churches and the first thing that he does is he introduces himself as the answer for what they're going through. He doesn't introduce himself as the one who has the answer. He introduces himself as the one who is the answer. I want to talk about that tonight. It's really good stuff. Okay, Jesus is the answer for your life, which is a difficult concept to grasp. Oftentimes, I think Christians, we think Jesus has the answer. I'll come to church, get my life together, pay my tithe, and man, he'll give me money. Well, that's, that's not what this says. It's, it's you come, you get wrapped up in Jesus, and you find out he is your money, man. He is your money. I mean, you don't come to him for him to give you more. See, a lot of times I think in the church, and I'll just... This is something I'm playing with, the language I'm trying to come to conclusion on, because I've been like this. But I think oftentimes in the church, perhaps, we treat Jesus as a stepping stone to something better. Uh, He's a step on a staircase. I give my life to Jesus so that I can have eternal life. Wow. What's eternal life about? Oh, man, mansion in the sky, streets of gold, four-wheelers. It's going to be great, man. Seriously. Thank you, Jesus, for letting me get here. Again, John chapter 17, I am eternal life. He is the prize. He is what we're after. That is the deal. So Jesus himself is the answer. It's the first thing he says to these churches, and we're going to explain on that tonight. But he comes to these churches, says, I'm the answer for what you're going through. And by the way, I know what you're going through. It was the context. He does that to every church. Presents himself As the answer, he does that to all seven churches. And then after presenting himself, he says, I'm the answer, and he describes their context. He does that with every church. I know where you're living. I know what you're going through. I know the issue with your husband. I know what's going on in your body that you've been hiding from everybody. I know your thought life. I know your entertainment choices. I, I know your situation, economic, family, social, whatever. I'm the answer for what you're going through. And then we learned that he wants to bring about a result. Okay? Releasing me in your context of life, I will bring about a result. Because there's no amount of church attendance that can bring the result that Jesus can bring about. Seriously. Well, Jeremiah, I've been coming to church. Well, how's that, how's that working for you? 
Church can't replace Jesus. Sorry. Well, I've been reading my Bible. And hey, Christians come to church and read their Bible. Reading your Bible doesn't replace Jesus, period. I do my devotions every morning. We've been given to the evangelists. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Hallelujah. Keep doing that. But it doesn't replace Jesus. It does not replace Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can produce what Jesus needs to produce, period. Okay? That's the, con- that's the format. Now, remember, our role in all of that as a lampstand is we have to maintain this posture. And what I mean by posture is you have Jesus released in your context, bringing about a result, and right here between the context and the result, releasing him into this context, if you maintain this posture, it releases the result that he wants to bring about. And what's the posture? Standing in the middle of your world going, I'm waiting in expectation. I'm not going to seek to solve this. I'm not going to seek to bring about the result. I'm not going to, hey, you're the only one that can fix this. And again, we're seeing that in our little boy. My son, and I, I shared with you this week, this last year, how he had a lying problem. Doesn't mean he's evil. All little boys lie, I think. And so, hey, he had this lying issue. You can't beat him. We tried that, <laughs> metaphorically. You beat the kid, don't lie. He's still going to lie. That's a spiritual problem that only Jesus can fix. That is a spiritual problem, period, that only Jesus can fix. So we live in the posture saying, Jesus, I desperately need you to bring about something in my boy that I cannot bring about. And folks, that's, that's scary to realize as a parent that your hands are tied and you can't bring about what only Jesus can bring about. That's frightening for me, at least, as a parent. So I'm living in the posture with my family. God's been telling me that I'm living in the posture according to my bodily drives. I'm living in the posture when I'm driving down the road. In fact, here's the result. I used to be the kind of guy that would say, well, I only bother Jesus with the, with the tough stuff. He's busy. He's really busy. So I can handle this. You know what I found? There's not one area of life that I can handle. Period. I can't brush my, I can't brush my teeth outside the posture. So literally, God wants me to live like this 24-7. Just walking and anticipating and moving and working and living in the posture in every single moment saying, Jesus, you are the, you are the answer for this McDonald's drive through and you're going to bring about a result, which means I'm probably not going to order here. I'm going to go in town somewhere else. You're going to meet the... So I'm anticipating that you're coming in the service tonight in the posture, not to be entertained, not to hang out, not to watch what God or feel. Or You've come in this service saying, Jesus, I do. I give you permission to bring about whatever you want in my life. Have at me. Okay. Now, I've been living like that in Pergamum. This is a brand new study in the last two weeks. And normally it takes us a little bit longer, but this thing just came together. Got three studies. So I lied to you yesterday. Apologize about that. Wasn't on purpose. But we was going to have two studies Okay, out of Pergamum. We was going to have uh, Jesus introducing himself and then describing their context to you, which was, again, really powerful. And we went over this uh, just the other night. The context of Pergamum. Well, let me give you the three. We were supposed to have uh, one covering the context and the where they're at, where they're living, and how the church wants, how Jesus wants the church to minister to them. That's one study. Okay? And then we was going to have another study on the, uh, on the result that Jesus wants to bring about. But there's too much in the result, so we're going to have two studies on the result that he's going to bring about. Which, oh, that probably confused you more. But here's what I'm talking about. Jesus comes to the church at Pergamon, if you remember, uh, just night before last. And uh, he's got the sharp double-edged sword, which has to do with judgment. This is not the, the sharp double-edged sword that you use to put butter in your toast. Okay? There's, there's one, this thing is used for one thing, lopping off heads, man. Hacking off limbs. It's the Conan. 
You have no idea. You need to watch Conan. Conan's a man. And so, hey, this big Conan sword, it's this double-handed, broad-bladed sword, man. It's used for hacking. Off. That's, it's the big dog. It's used for one thing, which is judgment, which is punishment. It's war, that kind of a deal. In other words, God says, hey, man, you have stuff going on in your church that I cannot tolerate, and I am bringing it. I'm bringing it to your church. I'm not holding back. We're, getting, we're dealing with this right now. I don't care what it takes. I'm after you in this. Which makes you go, dude, he is, he is serious about what's going on. He cares that I'm not fluffy on this. This matters to me. Okay? I, we're we're going to go after this thing. So he comes to Pergamum, but the problem is Pergamum is not going after it like he is. See, they've got, they got problems. And you say, what do you mean? Well, see, Pergamum lives in our day. Man, they do. And it's worse there at that time. I mean, but it's bad. In fact, as I begin to study through Pergamum, I did. I chuckled to myself because it reminds me of Vegas. I've been there like 20 times. I'm going back. I go there every year and preach this citywide youth crusade, do all of this stuff and, and see all. I'm there every year. And hey, I mean, Pergamum, the way he was describing Pergamum is the way you would describe Vegas. What happens in Pergamum stays in Pergamum. Thankful Lord. I mean, you don't want that everywhere. But that's, what, that's what's going on in Pergamum. You say, what do you mean? See, they had these, again, pagan cathedrals. Say, what's a pagan cathedral? It's a big worship place for false gods. And you might think, well, we have, you know, some, we'll drive down the freeway and see mosques and that kind of thing. No, 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 no. Not like this. See, they were in a paganistic day of open sensuality. I mean, big parades in the street. I'm talking this, the whole town in, in your face, you understand. I mean, it was brutally, just worldly, brutally. That was the, that's this town, okay? And it, you didn't have that in a lot of other towns. This town was known for that. You can look, you can Google it. I mean, you'll find this town was known for that kind of a thing. But they didn't only have the pagan cathedrals. This was a place for royal residents. And I thought of a way last night to communicate this to you as I begin thinking about it more. It's like almost the red carpet, Hollywood. You ever been to Hollywood? Really? Well, I mean, you got Ashland. So, uh, but uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, uh, I, I was stationed out in San Diego for, you know, three years. And um, we did, man. I went down to Jim Thorpe Sports, you know, the wards and watched that stuff. And we were on uh, make, Let's Make a Deal and all that kind of stuff in the crowd. And did out, and everybody, that was the new things you do when you're first in town. You go down and do those things. And you go down and watch the red carpet. Whoa, hey, there he is. And, you know, it's, that was this town. It was all the bigwigs came to this town for the big celebrations. They had the royal palaces. You could walk down the street in the midst of these big parades and the, and the, and the pagan cults and the, and the emperor worship. And you could say, yeah, man, Marlon Brando, whatever guy, lives right there. And Sylvester Stallone, and that was this town. That, that's the royal, the big time, the bigwigs lived here. That was, again, that kind of, and you know what that produces in our culture, folks. That's this culture. Not only that, this was combined with that. You had some of the famous universities in the, in the Roman culture that were present here. And if you've ever been around a, a university town, they know everything. It is so hard to minister to someone that's smart. <laughs> Honestly, it's hard. And there's a difference between smart and wisdom. Smart and wise. And I have people come up to me all the time and say, oh, you must be so smart. And I let them think that because it makes me look good. But the deal is, is that I'm really not that intelligent. I had to study twice as hard to get the grades that most people did. And you don't have to know Greek to have him reveal himself to you through his word. I'm serious. If you come to Jesus and say, speak to me, he'll speak to you. Okay? University of town, that's hard to sell. 
that's hard to sell because they spell better than you and they, they argue better than you. And Paul was up against that in, in some of those cities. So what I'm, this is the culture that they're living in. Now, hear this. This church is planted in that town. They're to be pushing Jesus on that world. They're to win that town, which means they're bringing those kind of people in the church. And they're there. Jesus says, hey, I know where you live, man. Satan's got his throne in this place. And you got false, you got a little bit of everything here, okay? This, a little bit of everything in this town. Whatever you want, you have it here. Jesus says, I'm bringing the double-edged sword. I'm going after this group. And hey, I want you to win this town. And I'm serious about this. I'm not holding back. We're going after this thing 100%. But he says, I've got a problem. And then in the midst of all of this, this was so shocking, he tells not that group that, the, that he brought, they brought in from the community, the, the worldly people in the church, he doesn't tell them to repent. He tells the church to repent. And you're like, what? And you read that right in the passage. For those of you who just gave me that funny look, look with me. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And then from verse 14 down through the uh, end of verse 14, into verse 15, he describes the kind of people who are there. The sexually immoral and the Nicolaitans, which means to conquer the people. It's a mental thing. Verse 16, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Hey, you got these people in the church that are ungodly. You repent or I'm going to come and get them. I'm thinking, what? That makes no sense. The deal is, is I'm coming after them, man. I'm going after this group. You need to repent the way you are dealing with that crowd. Now, the application of that is you and I are called to win to this world. And you, I want you after them, Jesus says, like I'm after them. Whatever it takes, how radical are we going to get? And what does that mean to minister to that group? So this is what he's saying so far. That's what we covered the other night. Jesus wants to be released in the midst of their context. He wants them to see like he sees, feel like he feels, hunger like he's going, I mean, just, hey, he's going at whatever it takes kind of a thing, like crucifixion. I'm willing to be uncomfortable. I'm willing not to get my own way. Okay, go after this community. Tonight, I want to look at at with you the result. Because Jesus says, hey, There's a result that I want to bring about for this town and your community. Are you with me? There's a result that I want to bring about for this town and this community. It's what I've been studying the last couple days. And uh, it begins with verse 17. And again, talking about the posture. Live in the spiritual posture. You can't bring this about, but get wrapped up into me. Just be eager with me. Allow me to do what I want to do in your life. Respond to that. And he says this, to him who overcomes. Now, pause. I almost missed this. When he says to him who overcomes, and then he talks about giving some hidden manna and a white stone, that's not just to the church. He's, yeah, I mean, it's to the church. It's to you. To him who overcomes, you're going to get some hidden manna. But he's also talking about the ungodly. And I'm just using you as an illustration. Don't read into that. Okay, so those who are the ungodly, though the Nicolaitans are sexually immoral, they're going to get some as well. So to him who overcomes... See, to him who gets wrapped up into me, begins to live in the posture, letting me what I want to do in their life. For the church, you have a reward, but also that group has a reward as well. Do you, do you see that in the passage? See, the result is not just for the church. It's for everyone in that town. See, I, I want this for everyone. Okay, you need to repent because we need to go after them. Because everyone who overcomes, he says, I'm going to give the right. This is kind of neat. I'm going to give the right for the hidden manna now. I want to talk to you about that. We were going to talk about the hidden manna and white stone all in one. But you're going to have to wait on the white stone. I really got wrapped up in the whole hidden manna thing. He starts talking about the hidden manna. Do you, you, know, anything, you know about the manna? You know what manna is? Manna 
is actually, this is so neat, and there's almost probably a, a, a sermon in this somewhere. Manna is not the term that God gave for the bread. That's the derogatory slang term that the grumbling Israelites gave to the provision of God for the people. That's what the manna was. And God adopted that. In other words, he's going to say, is that what you want to call it? All right, whatever, we'll call it that. He adopted that. But that was a slang term. Listen to this. I didn't pick that up until we studied this. Go back with me. We won't be here long. I'm going to have you turn to a couple different places. But I want you to go back with me beginning in, in, uh, in Exodus chapter 16. I want to walk you through my study that I've been going through the last week or so. This, uh, the manna term is not the godly term. God didn't call that. Do you know what the word manna actually means? <laughs> the, the Hebrew term manna means, what is it? That's what the word manna means. The people of Israel look, it's bread from heaven. Bread from heaven, Moses. Like, he's trying to sell it like it's a pizza party. We're going to get manna. People are like, this is going to be great. They walk out and like, what in the world is this stuff? I'm not eating that. It's on the ground. That's, that's what the manna was. I thought that was hysterical, but whatever. So, but uh, you come in and, and the people have left. They, they've crossed the Red Sea, this phenomenal miracle. God, again, the whole book of, of Exodus is about the provision and taking care of God and bringing about his plan. It's remarkable. Did, did you hear that? It's all about the provision of God taking care of his people. That's really sick. The message does not change. It's really remarkable. Well, he comes and, and they're grumbling. See, they leave, exit, they, they, they exit Egypt and say, man, it's, hey, we're, we're appreciative. We're wonderful. This is great. But it's, it's desert and we are starving. We are starving. We got water. Appreciate that. But we are starving to death. So God says, okay, I hear the grumbling of the people. So he comes to Moses, pulls him aside down in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down. Here's what, here's what God calls it. Listen to this. I will rain down bread from heaven. They're all into that. Bread from heaven. That sounds mighty, mighty good. That's what Moses is selling them. A bread from heaven rain down on you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron ran out to the Israelites and said, you guys are not going to believe this. We're getting bread from heaven. Woohoo! I mean, it's kind of like Old Testament pizza. I mean, it's going to be great, man. We're going to have this. It's going to be bread from heaven. It's going to be great. And he gives them all this kind of instruction. Well, that evening, and of course, we get the quail introduced as well, but we're not going to go over the quail. Come down to verse 13. That evening, quail came. And covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is this? I cracked up when I read that. They're like, You gotta be kidding me. Moses, Aaron, I'm never believing a thing you say again. Trying to sell me on bread from heaven. Look at this stuff. Then they named it. That's what it is. They called the provision of God, What is it? You have no sense of humor. That is hysterical, okay? He goes on, for they did not know what it was. So Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given to you to eat, okay? Now, what's remarkable, they live on this stuff for 40 years. 40 years, the what is it stuff. That's like mom makes a phenomenal meal. She's all excited, puts it in front of you. You're like, what is this stuff? 40 years is what it is. That's what that stuff is. 40 years you're getting that. Breakfast every morning. 
Now, it's interesting. When you read this in heaven, and again, that's phenomenal. That's awesome. That's awesome. God takes our what is it and says, I'll show you what it is. Serious, I'll show you what it is. This is your reward. So that's the, that's the picture. He doesn't call it bread from heaven. He shows Pergamum, this is the picture, okay? The great reward that I'm going to give you. See, if you get all wrapped up into me, man, you run after Pergamum. Hey, what happens in Pergamum stays in Pergamum. And you just, hey, you see what I see and feel what I feel and stand in the middle of your world and dump you. Hey, and it's going to be risky. And, man, you're going to be bringing kids in your youth group that are going to, and you're going to bring adults. And there's going to be problems and you're going to lose your parking place. And it's going to be rough. And drums are going to appear and da, 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 and on and on and on. But I'm telling, we're going to go after this deal. And the result, see, the result is not just for you, but it's for that group. You're going to get hidden manna. You're going to hidden manna. Now, obviously, when you go back into an Old Testament scene, stay with me, when you go back to an Old Testament scene, those are all the physical details, but even in, 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 which is fulfilled in the New Testament, okay? That's fulfilled in the New Testament. We're going to get to that in a second. But even in the passage, the big deal, the fulfillment wasn't the manna. See, God, the whole, God says it all the way back in verse 4 and 5. He says, I'm doing this to test them. Because they were only allowed to take enough to eat for that day. Keep it overnight, no refrigerator, it spoils. In fact, you say, well, how do you know that? In fact, they, people already blew it. You come down to verse 19. Moses said to them, verse 19, no one is to keep any of it till morning. Doesn't keep, no fridge. Verse 20, however, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it till morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So the whole place is stinking, and Moses was mad because of it. So they're already found. So the big deal spiritually, get a hold of this. This is really significant. And this is going to become more significant when we look at the application. But see, the big deal was is that it wasn't God's giving me food and that's my savior. That doesn't last. It was never meant to last. Well, then who's your savior? He's your savior, man. He's your savior. See, we stand up and say, man, God's my savior. And man, it was phenomenal what God did. We had this financial windfall, didn't see it coming, 50 bucks. It was great. That is great. And you relish it with the 50 bucks. You talk about what you're, all that. And the deal is you spend it, it's gone. You need another 50 bucks. So the 50 bucks is not the issue. And anymore, I'm learning, and this is hard to apply to anybody, but I'm learning, I'm not looking for 50 bucks. In fact, I'm not going to rejoice really when I get 50 bucks or not be overly excited. Why? Because I got him. And he knows my needs. And he's where my. It's difficult because, see, we preach that. We don't live that oftentimes. They didn't hear. They missed that throughout the whole Old Testament. Now, this is fulfilled in the New Testament. But what I found so remarkable, and uh, uh, the last place I'll have you turn, go with me to the book of John. In John's gospel, you have the exact same language, Jesus talking to a crowd and actually quotes their forefathers, which is the manna crowd. And, and it's the same deal. They're struggling with the same thing. This is just, it was just so amazing as you walk through this. Jesus comes in the feeding of the 5,000. Now you should know, if you've ever studied uh, the feeding of the 5,000 miracle, it's one of the few that's told in all four gospels. Okay. Feeding the 5,000 miracle, all four Gospels. What you may not know is Matthew, Mark, and Luke are identical. Story, grammar, everything. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is different. Different in grammar and different in structure in three or four different ways. You say, what do you mean? For example, when you come into the scene, you're, you're out. It's right before the Passover. And uh, 
Jesus is on this, he's teaching his disciples, crowd shows up. Jesus says, we got to feed this crowd. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what happened? Or the disciples actually come up and, uh, hey, they, 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 hey, we need to feed this crowd. And Jesus turns it all over to them and says, yeah, we got to do this. In John's gospel, it's a literal, it's, it's a specific test for one disciple. It's not so in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Down in verse 6, or verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for them to eat? So it was, it was deliberately placed in Philip's lap. We've got to study on this, and so you can go listen to that if you want to online. But, um, so it's different there. It's also different when you come down and you find out that the provisions for the miracle in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they just turn up. In John's gospel, the provisions for the miracle come from a little boy's sack lunch, whom Andrew steals very unjustly. Uh, they're like, where can we get food? And Andrew's like, I, I, I jacked this sack lunch from this poor kid over here, and he's got five, two, five small barley loaves and two small fish. And Jesus takes a little boy's sack lunch and meets the need, which is, again, remarkable, which tells you the emphasis is not the sack lunch, it's the person. A couple other differences is uh, Jesus stands up down in verse, oh, uh, what is it here? Verse 11, took the loaves, and your translation probably reads gave thanks. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's a different Greek word for gave thanks than here. And this word for gave, gave thanks is uh, Eucharisto, which is, we had a whole study on that. And most people say that the Eucharist, the Last Supper, is not in John's Gospel. It is. It's right here. But the part that I want to look with you at tonight is the fourth main difference. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus blesses the loaves in verse 11, hands it to his disciples, and they all hand it out. In this gospel, listen to what he says, verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. The disciples didn't do that. Jesus did that. And every scholar says, well, he really didn't do that. There's no way he did all that. The disciples obviously did that. Then why would John say that? He's trying to tell you something. This is his deal. This wasn't disciples' deal. See, this was Jesus' deal. Jesus did that. Jesus walked around. And, and, and hey, you can argue and say that's probably not factually true. It's probably not factually true. But John's trying to tell you that this was Jesus' deal in all this. Jesus did this. The whole point of the feeding of 5,000 miracle is no one has any food. There's no town to buy the food. Philip could attest to that. He takes a little boy's sack lunch, meets the need. Now, what's so ridiculous about this whole thing is all the crowd is after when you, the, the, the miracle ends in verse 15. And then verses 16 through 21 is the, is the uh, whole out on the water scene and, and uh, walking across the water. He's escaping the crowd. They, trace, they chase him down over to Capernaum. And the conversation begins back in, down in verse 25. And Jesus tells them plainly. This is a phenomenal study. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, verse 26. You are looking for me not because you saw a miraculous sign, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. The reason you're looking for me is lunch. You're not into me. In other words, the reason you start going to church is your marriage is in trouble. Quite frankly. The reason you're coming, the reason you're coming to church and you start giving and praying, why? Is because, man, your finances are in a shamble. And economy's bad. And, you, and the last place you turn is Jesus. That's what he says to this group. You are not into me. You are into that bread. It's the manna. See, you're into that kind of deal. When the whole point of the manna was to teach you about me. 
The whole point of the what is it to teach you about me. In fact, the whole dialogue that ensues as you go through chapter 6 is all over this. Uh, he, he tells them blatantly about this. Verse, after verse 26, when he says that, verse 27, he says, don't work for food that spoils. You see, that's the same language as back in Exodus. It's, hey, tomorrow morning, guess what? It's not going to be any good. Be full of maggots. And you're going to come looking for me again. And, and it's supposed to be like that. See, we're to be wrapped up in Jesus. There's no quick schemes. There's no, and this is maybe, and I, I didn't want to include this in our study, but what began to come to my mind when I studied this, 1995, I got saved. I was so irritated with the church when I first got saved. And I'll tell you why. First off, I was from the world, okay? I, well, I wasn't raised in church. But when I come into the church after being saved and someone reached out and plucked me from the fire, I, seriously, it absolutely blew my mind. The church at that time, and not all of them, of course, probably not yours, but they, it's like we, we settle for gimmicks. It's like, I know how we'll win the community. We'll give out toasters. I'm like, are you just, do you have a brain? That's ridiculous. And that's too rough, I know. But seriously, like someone's going to give their life to Jesus because you give them a toaster. You don't see that? It's gimmicks. I know what we'll do. We'll give candy. And, uh, and we try to, and it's this gimmicks and, and we'll offer basketballs and, and we'll just, it's gimmicks kind of stuff. You, you're not going to get me with a gimmick. Okay, seriously, you're not going to get me with a gimmick. Then how did you get me? Jesus. And everything in my life that I'd always put any stock in paled in light of Jesus. It literally did, man. Everything in my life. And I wasn't bad or satanic. I was your typical college guy that, man, ran after girls and partied and did drugs. And people, and people always told me, oh, drug, they tell their kids, drugs are terrible. They're no fun. They're horrible. What a liar. Drugs are fun. They are out, I mean, they're incredible for a while. And then they take over your life. And you do them not to have fun. You do them because you can't survive without them. And that is the truth, no matter what anyone tells you. Drugs are outstanding. And they're not drugs for nothing. They do it because it makes you feel great for a while. And then it calls your name. And then you're 6'4", 130 pounds, and you can't get up in the morning without it. And you hate it, and you hate yourself, and you're depressed, and you're a mess. That's what that life did to you. And by the way, every other aspect of life does it the same way. It all produces death. And someone entered into my life and didn't say, hey, I see what you're going through. You want a toaster? <laughs> Come on. No, I don't want your toaster. You know, we've got padded seats. Like, what are you talking about? I'd got to come in my life and say, man, you're going to die. You are going to die. Can I present to you an alternative? And it's about love and it was about acceptance. It was about seeing yourself with a whole different perspective. About letting Jesus do in your life what you could never. It was phenomenal. It wasn't about toasters. It wasn't about gimmicks that we tried to, it wasn't about hanging sign on the, on the front, we're having revival, thinking the world's just going to flock in. That's, that's not, that isn't how it works. See, Jesus and Jesus alone is the answer. Nothing can take his place. And that's what was presented to me. And I got to know him and he moved in my life and I, I was never the same. I was never the same. So Jesus comes to this crowd and he's telling them, don't work for the food that spoils. That's their language. Our language is, yeah, you, the food's great at first, but it's going to spoil. Drugs are fantastic. Sex is awesome. 
Teens, you're young and good looking. Not you totally, but you're, I mean, the rest of you are young and good looking, okay? You're young and good looking. You're not going to be young and good looking forever. And if you don't believe me, look at your parents. That's how it is. Is that as honest as we can be? You are going to gain weight. And you, uh, you, this is how it is. And if you get wrapped up into this, and you're all about being young, and I'm serious, I'm being dead serious. If you're all about being young and good looking and all of that, and your vanity is wrapped up in that kind of a deal, you're going to be one ridiculous looking, Botox filled, in debt plastic surgery. Because that doesn't last. That does not last. That's what he's talking about here. Don't work for that, he's saying. You're going to run for that for the rest of your life, and that doesn't, it doesn't last. It's vanity. It's, it's empty. It's, it's, that's the trick of the enemy. It's great at first, and it, dude, it is great. It is great at first, but it does not last. It does not last. And when you find Jesus, you're going to realize even the at first great stuff doesn't compare to him because he's the real deal. So he goes through this whole crowd, and listen to how aggressive. I don't mean to drag this out, but listen to how aggressive he gets with this crowd. He tells them about this. They're all bothered, and he, they get back and forth a little bit in verse 28, 29. And so they ask him, listen to how deceived they are. Well, okay, we, basically they say, we like what you're saying, but we're going to need a miracle to prove it. This is how they say that. What miraculous sign then, verse 30, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? And then they say, well, let me give you an example. How about this? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. And it's lunchtime. We're all starving, right? You could do a miracle. We could do some more manna. And again, they're after him because of the food. So Jesus responds in verse 32. He says, I tell you the truth. It's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. In fact, whoever eats this bread is never going to be hungry again. They're like, hot dog, let's get it on right now. We'll take that. Jesus responds down in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the big deal, man. I am your lunch. I'm what you're running after. Not the girl, not the guy, not the job, not the food, not the drug. I'm it, man. I'm your fix. That's what he says. In fact, he comes down, and again, he's quoting our Old Testament passage. He's talking about their forefathers. They're, they're wrapped up into the same thing. Verse 41, at, th- at this, the Jews begin to grumble against him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. So he responds again down in verse uh, 48. He says, and he says a bunch of other stuff, but we can't cover it all. But he says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, but they died. And here staring you in the face is the bread that comes down from heaven that a man can eat and not die. I am your answer. So when you're coming into our passage, folks, if you can get past the physical just manna, you know, because that's not a great reward. You know, I, I spend my life serving Jesus, winning people to the kingdom, and I get what is it bread, you know. But the spiritual significance of that is literally what the manna stood for. It was bread from heaven. In other words, the provision of God in my life. Now, how this applies to the crowd in, in Pergamum, and this, that was the last place I want you to, to look at. So if you wouldn't mind, please turn back with me to Pergamum, uh, Revelation chapter 2. Now, what I've been trying to describe to you is this. Okay, I'll, I'll, let me rein us in real quick. Jesus is the answer for what they're going through. He wants to bring about a result. Okay? What are they going through? Well, they're, they're ministering to a town that is, is, it's the world. What happens in Pergamum stays in Pergamum. Jesus comes and says, I'm going after that town, man. I, I'm getting in their face. In fact, I'm bringing, a sh- I'm lopping off heads. I'm, I'm hacking off limbs. 
That's how matches matters to me, whatever it takes. I want you in on that because there's a result that I want to bring about. What's the result that I want to bring about? I want you guys to have the hidden manna. Now hear this. I want you guys to be the recipients of the provision of Jesus. I want you to learn to realize along with them that I am the one who's going to meet every possible need in your life. And what's really important with this is Pergamum is struggling, if you remember, with two things. The first thing that they're struggling with is the whole, um, it's the whole sexual immorality deal. Okay, remember the teachings of Balaam? You have those there who following the teachings of Balaam who led the Israelites in eating food sacrificed to idols and into sexual immorality. That's one group there. Here's sexual morality. Most of the time the church thinks of, and this, help, this passage helped me, most of the time when the church and teens think of sexual immorality, your parents talk to you about immoral sexuality, what are they talking about? Do not have, starts with S, ends with X, sex before marriage, okay? Hey, that sexual morality, oh, sex outside of marriage, having, having uh, you know, uh, affairs and, and, and all that. Yes, yes, that's sexual immorality. But do you know what really in their culture was and the whole pagan cult issue was, was literally about, it's about self-fulfillment. See, sexual immorality is literally about me fulfilling my sex drive instead of him fulfilling my sex drive. See, it's him, he is the one that meets this bodily drive versus me meeting this bodily drive. See, one of the deceptions is, is that, and you deal with this with young teens and young guys from the very beginning, and it's a big controversy that's ridiculous it even should be talked about, is the big deal about your bodily drive is Jesus is the one that meets that, okay? Fulfilling your sex drive doesn't cure your sex drive. It only grows. It only grows. And the big deal is, is that literally God has, and in marriage and the whole deal with marriage is, is that God has provided through my wife the answer for my bodily drives. Uh, before I was a Christian, I acted like the world. I, I, I lived in Pergamum, man. I lived in Pergamum. I did that kind of stuff. I, I was at, that's just what the world does. I wasn't evil. I was just your typical on television college guy running after girls. After I was married, I re- that doesn't, it's hard to sell this to the world, but that doesn't compare to godly marriage and how he intended it. I'm telling you that. It does not compare. And the problem is, is as a teen, if you allow your mind, it's a sexually immoral mind, if you allow your mind to be tainted and look at, at sexuality the way the world presents it, it is going to mess up your marriage. It will jack up your marriage. I'm telling you that. Because that is not the way that, the, that, that Jesus, the way the world presents, it's not the way that Jesus. See, this group is sexually immoral. See, a lot, some of the commentators said, well, these people came into the church and they were doing all the stuff from the parade into the church. No, they weren't. That, no, they weren't. They were coming into the church and they were telling all the, the teens that came from the world, they were coming into the church and they were referring to the girls in the church the way that the, the world refers to girls in the church. Calling them eye candy. You hear, that's, that's, you hear that language? That's, that's the world they call them. See, the girls are eye candy. That pervaded the youth group, you see. They looked at them as objects and the girls. 
because they wanted to be popular and they wanted to be, see, they dressed like that. See, that's sexual immorality invading the youth group. Here's the thing. In the youth groups, we find girls wear these purity rings. Do you realize, I really got into this back when I was a young Christian, uh, as a young minister. Um, there was a several girls, Christina Aguilera, believe it or not. Um, one of the girls that belonged to that group, Destiny Child, Beyonce Knowles. She brought this Christian group at the time, Destiny's Child. They, they did this whole big old thing with, with puri- a purity push. And I remember thinking, purity? That's what a pure girl dresses like? And I was in a church, this is years ago, I was in a church, and they did this, uh, had this teen magazine that did this interview with that Destiny's Child group. And the, and the interviewer was just brutal with Beyonce. And he, she asked Beyonce, how do you reconcile the message of purity with the way you dress? And she said, the way I dress is my job. Has nothing to do with my faith. <laughs> I was like... She's not even a blonde. I mean, that, that, that doesn't even work. Seriously. Oh, it has nothing to do with my faith. It's my job. Well, yeah, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because my job doesn't have anything to do with my faith. What are you? I'm a drug dealer. Chair my drug. Churches can't make the bills. Drugs, it fills the gap, you know. What? She, is a, she has a deprived mind, folks. Because that is not how Jesus Christ wants you to be. And that's not how you want to be treated. So what happens is, are, are you with me on this? See, a sexually immoral culture invades the church. And we look at our wives like that. And so I'm proposing to you that you can never have sex before marriage and still not be sexually pure. Because sexual purity has nothing to do with the act of sex. It's literally a, 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 a satanic mindset that's inver- it pervaded the church. And Jesus says, I'm going after that thing, man. And what's the whole deal with, this, with, with the twist of the sexually immoral world? It's the manna thing, that that will never bring fulfillment. Dressing like an object will never make you happy and fulfilled. Girls, it will not. And I'll tell you something else, guys, and I'll just be as frank as I can be. Trying to turn your wife into someone you want her to be will never end, because she will never be who you want her to be. That's how it is, dude. See, so, well, how am I supposed to look at my wife? I realize that she belongs to Jesus and I'm not here to use her for me. I'm here to be used in her life. And my life doesn't revolve around my bodily drives. My life revolves around Jesus. And you find that something happens between you and your spouse. And you are changed forever. That's the provision of Jesus. My life, I had to, I had to come to a decision as a young man that my life does not revolve around my bodily drives. And as a Christian, you're going to have to do that. And that does, I, I know men that are sexually immoral. At, it, it married because their life still revolves around that. And you cannot. Because that's not your provision. He is your provision. Jesus is your provision. And he does the same thing, the last thing this group, it, the sexually moral and also uh, the Nicolaitans, which we remember we talked about as the intellectually superior, is that you have a whole group in church that know the message. Oh, they've been to college. They, they can spell, been to church for so long, they know all that. Knowing it and having it a reality in your life are two different things. I'm not going to rely on facts and, 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 hey, Jesus is my provision for this stuff. Jesus brings about wisdom. So what am I talking about tonight? Here's what Jesus did in my life today. Jeremiah, what in your life meets your needs besides me? Where's my provision? What are you wrapped in? What are you wrapped into? I don't care what it is. And in my mind, that's what makes cigarettes bad. Smoking is no worse than a funnel cake. Personally, I feel about it. 
then why don't you smoke? Same reason I don't eat funnel cakes. Because I'm not addicted to anything but Jesus. Cigarettes are no, dif- no different than the person who can't live without caffeine. I'm not addicted to anything but Jesus, period. And that's not a superiority spiritual thing. It's that as a growth in my life where Jesus is Jeremiah. I, I don't want you, that cannot, that's an artificial substance. A mimic, a mockery of me. That is a mockery of me. So I just, I want to ask you just, what mockery are you into? Say, where are you chasing after manna? See, the hidden man is in Jesus. That's the deal. That's what he wants to come to Pergamum. That's the result that he wants to bring about. He wants to bring about in the church of Pergamum a whole group of people that say, hey, got everything every here, anything here that I, I could have at my disposal, anything that I could want, but I turn it all down for you because I know, I've learned, I've learned. I'm in the motel room. I've got every channel. I've got the computer. I've got the internet. I've got anything at my disposal that I want. You, you. I want you to be my provision. Tim's going to come and he's going to lead us in worship. And no pressure on this. In fact, I'll be honest with you. If you get out of your seat, you're probably going to look bad. (laughs) Okay? So I'll be the only one up here tonight, probably. But you know when it really comes down to it? No offense. I really don't care in the world what you think of me. Honestly. And that's not an arrogant thing. That's just how it is. I don't, I really could care less. Because I don't get myself, I don't get my self-esteem off of what you think of my sermons or how many people come to my altar, calls, whatever. My self-esteem comes the way that he looks me and he loves me. And I'm in a dynamic relationship with him. And he thinks I'm something else. And so I, I, I am. I'm not a perfect guy. I'm growing like a weed. But I'm responding tonight. And I'm saying, Jesus, I don't want any artificial substance in my life. I want the hidden manna. I want, the, I want your provision in my, I want you meeting my bodily drives because I know I could never meet them. I want you meeting the needs of my life because I could never meet them. And there, I, I just, I don't know, but I know from experience and from statistics, there are men in this room that have a computer screen meet their needs in a fantasy world that does not exist, that will never exist. And your wife can never be. And women do it through books and gossip and and you go, have at it, have at that. And in five years or so, when I run into you again, I'll ask you, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? I'm not living like that. Not because it's just the wrong thing to do or I want to be spiritual. I'm not, I'm not running that rat race. I know what that leads to. And so if he's talking to you tonight, I do, I would, I'd beg you, give your life to Jesus in that area. And who cares what anybody thinks of you? Let me pray for you. Jesus, I love you tonight. I do. I, man, I just, I live in Pergamum, Jesus. And you're dishing out hidden manna. And on the surface, you look it out and you say, what in the world is that? You're, you're asking me, Jesus, that you, you, I can't even physically see you, that you can meet my need better than that girl over there. Better than that money over there. I mean, I look at you and go, what, are, what is it? What, how are you going to meet my need? That's the manna. It's ridiculous. It's just incredible. But anybody who's tasted and seen that you are good, it's just... Everything else not only pales in light of you, but it just... Everything else does not last. Keep me from vanity, Jesus. 
I want to take care of my body and I want to be healthy. But don't let me get wrapped up into physical fitness. I want to be financially secure and I want to provide for my family. But don't let, you get, don't, don't let me get wrapped up in money. I want to be used by you and I want to travel and continue doing I, I just, I feel so right doing what I'm doing. But I'm not wrapped up in preaching. I'm wrapped up in you. And God, there are those that are, are here tonight that love you and they've been here all week. Would you not let up on them? Would you do what you did to Pergamum? Would you bring the sword? Would you call us to repent? Maybe embrace a whole new idea tonight and have your way. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed and no one's looking around. And again, is there anyone here that just says, I want that bad enough like that? And if you're like that tonight, would you follow me and would you come down? See, the whole point of the altar, if you ever, I didn't mention this this week, but the altar is not found in the Bible, not our altar, not this kind. You'd say, where'd it come from? There's a bunch of different traditions. I believe the one that comes from the Middle Ages. It has to do with knighthood, where you come down, you kneel at your knees, you bend over, you expose the back of your neck, which is the most vulnerable part of your body, and it's a position of vulnerability. What I want to ask you tonight is I want you to become vulnerable tonight. I want you to come down in front of everybody and say, Jesus, I'm tired of living this way. I want you to meet a need in my life that I've been meeting because I'm tired of living like this. And so we're going to tarry just for a few minutes. And if he speaks to you, would you come? Would you respond? Altars are open. Um, called our office today and, and uh, we're um, going to be putting on some uh, teaching curriculum. We're having so many people that are called to the ministry that are not going to go out to Bible college. And they're basically just saying, what do I do? Do I go through my district? And you can do that. We have great courses in the district. But um, I've got a, we've got a Crosstown Ministries, and uh, I'm vice president of Crosstown International Ministries, and it's changing to Crosstown Global Training Center. We have 150 of those across the world. So we have all kinds of courses and stuff on Christology and how to study the Bible and all of those kinds of practical stuff. And we're developing those constantly, and I'm putting them all on my site for free. So if you feel a call to ministry, and you can not only get on and listen to studies, uh, audible, audible studies, but you can get on and watch uh, training videos. And we just want, I want to help you. We want to help you. We just want to facilitate you. I'm constantly running by people that come up to me and say, hey, I believe in what you're doing. I want to facilitate you. Here's $5 a month. Here's $10 a month. Use that for what you're doing. And we say, thank you, thank you, thank you. And so I want to, I want to, we want to be the ministry that doesn't make money off you. We want to facilitate you. And uh, just, you, we cross our path. If I could just grab you and just kick you on your way really hard. Just kick you towards Jesus. And we, I'd love to do that for you. We'd love to be able to help you. So any way we can help you, let us know. Um, we have a Facebook account. It'd be a great way to keep up with you. Uh, we also got the newsletter out there on the clipboard if you want to sign up for that. So uh, we love you to pieces. You've been very kind to us. And uh, we're going to be in Ashland First Church sometime in the spring in the spring so if you want to raid that place over there while i'm there i'd love to see your face we're going to be it'll be all new material by that time so we'll just be on we'll be in revelation chapter two at the end of the chapter by the time you're there. so you're you'll really love it if you want to come so we'll have a great time and and we'll just we'll just seek and grow together so it's been great to be with you thank you tim use a blessing and a half this week really it's phenomenal work with you let me pray for you guys. Jesus, I love you. I pray uh, for this church like I pray for myself. I pray you'd get aggressive with them. I pray you'd push them around. 
I pray you draw them close to you, wrap them in your arms. I pray you give them wisdom beyond their years to know you and a hunger for your word. And I pray you wouldn't stop pushing Jesus till they respond. Wake us up in the middle of the night, Jesus. Have your way and we'll give you all the glory and all the praise. You're the one we're seeking. In your name we pray. Amen.